0: Uh, Oh, I almost said Exodus. Ephesians. We have been in Exodus, and we'll be back in Exodus again. But we are starting a new series today. As you probably saw in the worship guide as you came in, entitled, it is another spiritual formation series, this one entitled Justice and Reconciliation. In order to get there, we will read the entirety of Ephesians chapter 2. 976 on most of the black Bibles around you Ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse one and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by uh, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at time uh, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being himself... The cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Starting a series on justice and reconciliation is something that I am both very excited for for the next coming month, and I will admit, I'm extremely nervous. And for that reason, in order to start our series well, this is where we have to start, with a whole lot of disclaimers. Disclaimer number one. This series is focusing on justice, but justice is a really huge topic. Therefore, this series by no means claims to deal with the entirety of biblical justice. Tim Keller writes in his book, Generous Justice, he quotes um, a law professor who basically lays out this idea that there's almost three strong, big buckets of a definition of justice. There's uh, justice in sensing like what is the best common good for all people and how do we arrange our society that way? There's a sense of justice where uh, all people are free from oppression and the oppression to be coerced to do Uh, the will of a dictator, or things like that. That's where liberty and justice for all comes from, In that sense of justice. There's even a justice where it seeks to find those who are naturally marginalized in society and making sure that they have uh, the same access to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. All these things that you hear are baked into what we talk about regularly as Americans or what we think about as people who are uh, wanting to be those who are marked by a full biblical category of justice. Because all three of those ideas people will talk about and they'll talk about as justice, but the Bible sees all of those things as justice and more. And so when you talk about justice, you're talking about areas of economics and politics and crime and punishment and cycles of poverty and gender equity and religious freedom, and it goes on and on, and it can go into a myriad of just topics and directions. And for that reason... We've at times preached different sermons on a biblical view of justice a couple years ago in a vision series. I remember preaching in Isaiah 58 about just what is a biblical view of justice. But the truth is is we could preach a long time on justice and never get to the bottom of it. And because we are going to do a targeted series, we're just going to say, hey, this series is going to most specifically deal with ethnic uh, reconciliation, which is just one part of justice. But it is a very important part of justice, particularly for, Siri want to be involved in this sermon. Uh, It is an important part of justice because it is an important part of our lives, both our nation's past and our nation's present. And so I don't want to conflate the idea that reconciliation is the entirety of justice, but it is a very important part of justice and which is why we want to focus on it very directly for the next few weeks. Disclaimer two. I'm really excited about this series. It's not going to fix 400 years of racial tension. Um, It is going to attempt to try to bring us into a place of unity in how we talk about it in our church. It's a place of unity to how we've even experienced uh, both racial tension historically where you come from how that's been a part of your history that's been a part of your life um but yeah we just have to hold it humbly of uh, this can do a step towards us in our own body towards us being unified together but um but there is a well we'll get into it more next week it's it's something that is we have to continue to pray for and seek justice in this area for our country for our lives for our church for our neighborhoods Um, disclaimer three I'm not going to preach this series perfectly I'm going to make mistakes in this series I do that in every series by the way Um, uh, and you have to figure them out I just never tell you Uh, I sometimes come back and be like I was off there Uh, but for the most part uh, that is just a regularity of having to communicate scripture and, and truths of God day in day out I've heard many preachers some preachers I really respect be like you know at the end of the day I look over the course of my preaching, and if I could just get 80% on and 20% heresy, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. Um, and uh, those are like the best. Those are like those people who have been in it for a while. So I'm like probably working with a more generous percentage than that. But regardless, I am not going to be able to voice this perfectly. I, I just sense this desire in the series to be able to get things right, to hit all angles, to cover all concerns, to be clear but nuanced, uh, to be full of truth and grace, and those are things I for week in, week out when I come to this moment. Um, But ultimately there is one hero, one savior, one person who can unite all peoples in this topic, and even when he preached, you tend to get a lot of mixed reactions. And so I can hardly imagine that I'm going to do it all perfectly, and so I just ask for in this series for me and for or you know people who will preach in the series uh, just to ask for a level of generosity um, that doesn 't mean uh, you need to if I bring up something that you feel like is off or you feel like there's something that is is unhelpful or that you just need to stuff it, but rather just have the generosity to come have the conversation i 'd love to be able to speak to it um, also i 'd say. This series is four parts and really every part brings up a part of a conversation that I'm going to have to push to another week. And so uh, this series is to be taken as a whole. Um, there might be something that you'd be like, well, wait a second, you didn't talk about this. It might be coming in the weeks two, three, or four. And so um, possibly I would ask you just to continue to wait and take the series as a whole. Uh, if there's something where it's like hey you, you want to come back to it write it down while it's fresh but then then let's come back to it after the entirety of the series so that hopefully uh, over the course of the series there will be some nuance and, and flesh put onto things um, so i ask just yeah for a level of generosity um, and then also just a level of openness too this is a topic that once it's brought up uh, has the tendency to aliven some and shut others down and I would just ask for us all to be open in our hearts, be open to what the Spirit might want to do. Um, And that is for wherever you are in this issue, wherever you are in this this concept. And then I also ask us all just to be prayerful for our church. I feel like whenever you seek unity, there is an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, divide, take away. And so I just have been really thoughtful and prayerful towards what I hope would bring unity, what let many of our leaders and, and deacons and, and, and MC leaders have been praying for to bring unity in our church, I would just ask us all to be in prayer towards that end because I, I want us to find this to be a unifying series and not a dividing one. So please be prayerful towards that end. Um, next. This series is not to further a sense of toxic guilt and shame. This is not a series which, in which I'm trying to beat up a majority culture, or any I just say me. I, our whole teaching team, our leadership, is wanting to beat up on majority culture. It's not trying to demonize or villainize. Um, it's not meant to just create guilt theater, uh, just a sense of replaying things and topics for the sake of just bringing up guilt and shame and, and things that have all the senses of, of worldly sorrow, but not godly grief, as Paul talks about. Godly grief is something that leads to change and repentance in life. And that ultimately, in all these things, the good news is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the great news of having no condemnation and everything is that then, in no condemnation, we can then open our hearts, open our lives, examine. We can be like David when he says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so I I hope if you come into this place being like, oh man, just as reconciliation, I get this, this is where we just have to like relive pain of the past and, and just uh, try to stir up a level of guilt in our hearts. I hope you're not starting there. I hope you're starting from a place of, hey, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so search me, God. And show me, hey, is there any way in which we can examine our personal past and, and presence, our our corporate past and our corporate present, and just ask, is there any way that we can be led more into a path of bringing the kingdom in this, this city, in our neighborhood, in our lives? Also, um, for if you are here and you're a person of color, um, I realize also it's a series that can be very uncomfortable. Uh, it can be a sense of just bringing up wounds or bringing up frustrations. Um, and I realize that that's just a way of understating Just discomfort. is probably an understatement. Um, and then also I realize it can put you in a place where you're just like, uh, you feel like the focus of the room or the uh, the representative that has to then represent you know, race and, and things to all people and, and I just hope that you are both encouraged and challenged in the series as well. It's my prayer for all of us. Um, and then lastly I would say this in just disclaimers. A lot of times we can talk about this topic and bring up all the problems and offer no solutions. It is not the goal of the series. This series we very much so want to talk about, as a people, what do we do? This is a spiritual formation series. We're putting it in our spiritual formation for, formation larger series because we want to draw us to practical action. That being said, the first couple weeks will be a lot of bringing in overall vision, bringing in over. there will be a little practical action maybe laced in the first couple weeks but that's really kind of getting to the back half of the series is when we're getting to more practical action. But we hope and we are trying to design this series so that it would not be said, okay, that's all great, we all know the information, we know the history, we know all the problems, but what are actual things that we can do to be a part of bringing the kingdom in the area of being a reconciled people in this city and in our time. And So that is something very much that we want to get to. And I know there's like a certain sense of like, is this a spiritual formation series? Like, it, you know, again, the, it, people rarely re- offer things that you can do about this. And, and is there anything to reconciliation that is, should be seen as like spiritual formation or is this more political? It, this is interesting. Uh, Angie, can you toss that picture up on uh, the infographic here? Uh, there, uh, this is, eh, well, you can't really see it that well. Uh, this was a, published in Christianity Today. Uh, and this is just a poll that was taken about people uh, who are naturally selected in this poll, or naturally told themselves, in, or uh, setting themselves in this poll, that they are someone who uh, are people of diverse relationships. And what's interesting is that they were people who uh, are engaged in diverse relationships also are more likely to do things like give generously, uh, be compassionate to the poor. Here, let me bring this up here in a, another form because that's really too hard for even me to read. Uh, one second here. Uh, here we go. So yeah, uh, 54% versus 46% of those uh, who have diverse relationships versus those who have less diverse relationships hold a higher level of compassion for the poor uh, and they are, therefore can give generously. 46% uh, versus 39% attend a small group or Bible study. So having diverse relationships actually seems to factor in in some ways of like if you just attend small group or Bible study. A uh, higher percentage read the Bible on their own, volunteer at church, believe the church should, be help, uh, uh, should help repair the damage from uh, racial injustice, and attend a church that emphasizes justice. It's just interesting that, of course, there's some things you'd expect that people have diverse relationships in there, but then there was also things that are just like, yeah, there are people who have diverse relationships, whether it is the diverse relationships that cause them to be more engaged in just regular practices of faith, or just people who are regularly practicing faith tend to engage in diverse relationships, there's something reciprocal about this anti-spiritual formation paradigm that we just couldn't ignore. So, in all that, getting into the topic of today, why talk about this? Because I just had to go through all those disclaimers, and there's a level of like, well, isn't this like kind of a divisive topic? And part of it is because this is part of our church's vision that we would be in neighborhoods and we would continually look more and more like the makeup of our neighborhood and we would be in diverse communities of a one body worshiping Christ together. And then also, this is a part of discipleship. I have already made, mentioned there in the infographic, but I, I don't say this to be like overly critical of any specific church or church leader or anything like that, but I've heard some sentiments of those saying like, well, like, shouldn't we just move away from controversial topics because it's going to cause division and we, want, we don't want anything to get in the way of the gospel, of people hearing the gospel of Jesus coming and saving them from their sins. And to that, I would say yes and amen. I don't want anything to get in the way of the gospel. But if the gospel that is being preached doesn't deal with unifying divided people groups, unifying ethnicities, unifying people of differing ideological perspectives, I would follow up with the question, to which gospel are you referring to? Because I want to deal with this concept of reconciliation sometimes is put into like, well, that's a social justice movement or a social justice warrior movement or a social justice gospel. But ultimately... When I think of the gospel, I think of no text more clearly than Ephesians 2. In fact, when, before I was in uh, pastoral ministry and I was uh, with Campus Crusade on Butler and IPUI and New Indies campuses, I was asked by our leader of the crew movement, he said, hey, can you think of a text, one text of the Bible that has the entirety of what you would share to somebody in the gospel? and I was new enough in my faith so I googled it and I came up with Ephesians 2. And so what you have here in Ephesians 2 is recognized not only by Google not only by crew not only by myself but by countless people as the seminal text on just laying out the gospel. If you're like somebody who just says like man I don't really don't know how to articulate the gospel. I mean several times with people when I've been talking to them about the gospel rather than like pull out some track booklet, I'll pull out Ephesians 2 and say, hey, let's just read and talk through Ephesians 2. This is the ultimate gospel text. And so I just simply want to walk through it and show that this is very much so baked into the heart of the gospel, the issues that we'll be dealing with here for the next few weeks. And so let's simply do that. Read with me again, and we'll be kind of... Dropping in and starting in verse 1, going through the chapter. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What Paul, the apostle Paul who wrote this, is trying to do in the first three verses is he is trying to Compare the beauteous, uh, the beauteous, beautiful and glorious news of the gospel to the darkness of which you came from. As anyone who is a believer in Jesus, you want to compare the beauty of the saving grace of Jesus to your life until that came in. Comparative beauty, whenever I think of that concept, I think of social media profile pictures. Because if you have a person that you know only on social media and then you meet them in person, a lot of times you realize that their picture uh, and their reality create l- a sense of, man, there's a more beautiful version of them online than in real life, which is why, by the way, I am now trying to attempt to take all pictures from a downward angle just trying to get like as much of this as I can. If I can get every Internet picture of me to look like this, then for the rest of my life, people are like, you look amazing. <laughs> because that is comparative beauty. You take it to something like, wow, this is what we thought Kent looked like. And Kent is killing it in life. Like, it doesn't matter. I'll be like 98 and be like, you look, I mean, you look better than when you were 30. And Or if you go to buy a diamond, guys who are going to go buy diamonds for uh, someone special here at some point in your life, When they take that diamond out, they are going to put it on a black felt cloth. Why? Because the darkness of the cloth is going to cause that diamond to shine more brilliantly. Or why? When you want to see stars, do you get away from the city, away from light pollution? You try to pick a night that has no moon present so that you can see the beauty of shining balls of fire in our universe against a jet black sky. Likewise, Paul here in verses 1 through 3 is trying to lay out the darkness of which we all came from. He said, hey, you were like walking dead people, following the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan, the opposer, the devil. He said, hey, all of you are like people who are just by your own nature following after he who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It's why all Christians should, like John Newton does, not stare at your sin of the past, not stare at your brokenness, but glance at it. Glance at it to remember that which you were saved from. And then he goes on in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I love the idea that Paul's just like saying, hey, you were dead in your trespasses. Because for me, all of my life, I was trying to figure out how to just be better, to, uh, to show God that I really was all on his team, to just try to incrementally get better and better and better. And Paul says, Hey, until that moment where God just comes and makes you alive, you were dead. You didn't have any ability to get any better. You weren't going to earn it in any way. To be dead is to recognize that I did not ask for my salvation. I did not set myself up for it by positioning myself and, and, and being generally good. I, I Did not get a little bit better at a time. I did not do anything to earn it. But instead I was saved by God just looking at me and saying, I pick you and I save you and I pull you out of all the people that are dead. I'm going to continually pull more and more people out of death and bring them to life. Because of a great love with which he loved us. I think of I've, I had a conversation with someone recently who was helping me work through just some of my past and some of my uh, uh, wounds and things that are still very much so ways that I struggle to experience the love of God uh, and he said to me "Look me square in the eyes and he said hey this is true of a lot of people but I think that somewhere in life you've exchanged love for respect and what he was talking about was Love is something that I have no control over. Love is something that nobody owes me. Love is something that I can't earn from anyone. Respect is something that you owe me. If I'm great, you owe me respect. If I surprise you, marvel you, go the extra mile, you owe it to me to respect me. I can control your respect of me. I have no ability to control your love. And he said, hey, Love is something you have to be given and because you were fearful that nobody would give it to you, you decided that you would try to earn as much respect as you possibly could and love would come if it had to. You gave that up. That's why Paul is clear to say, hey, the reason that God has pulled you out of death into life is not because you earned it. It's not because he respects you. It's because of a great love that he pours upon you. He gave you something that you did not deserve. One pastor says it like this, that grace means that you get dessert even though you did not eat your dinner. And it is not a result of work so that no one may boast that ultimately the good news of God saving me, not by anything I've done, Simply by his great love with which he has for me, he reaches down and saves me. It means that I can't say to anybody, I have some sort of merit. It means that God will not see anybody walk into the throne room of his high heavens and just be like, There they are. You did it. I made it hard, but you worked at it. There was a bunch of other little faiths that you could have gone off on, but you chose the right path, the right way up the mountain. And there they are, people that ultimately he watches everyone walk in and fall on their face and say, if not for the grace of God, I have no room to stand in the throne room of God. But now because of his grace, that because of his great love that he's poured upon me, I now am brought in as a son, as a daughter, an adopted child of the king. It's interesting, adoption law, I just heard from a pastor in the, in the state of Georgia i do not sure about other states, but they were just talking specifically about the state of Georgia. They said they found out that an adoption law uh, says that when you make a will for your biological and adopted children, in the state of Georgia, you can write your biological children out. But by law, your adopted child is fully sealed, fully covered, fully protected. And that is a blessing idea when we start to think about the fact that we are all adopted children into the family of God. And in Ephesians 1, he says, hey, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's a term of a king putting his stamp on you and saying, hey, you're not like just a kid that I adopted that I might just like kick out eventually. No, you are fully brought in. You are the real deal when it comes to my child. In fact, it is just like in the state of Georgia. I have you and I will never let go of you. And I have this in a way that I've adopted you that you may not boast. And I'm going to create you as my workmanship. I mean, do you see that in verse ten? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for uh, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship is the word poema. It's where we get the word poem. It's this idea that you were created beautifully and with intention and with design in order to show the beauty and the riches of God through your life. And so for somebody who feels lonely, who feels alone right now in your situation and your time and your place. It is no trite thing to sit and ponder on the fact that you are loved by the God and creator of this universe. Please don't rush by that. Please don't like let that fall into a junk drawer of things that you hear a thousand times. This same man who was helping me by looking me in the eye and said, hey, you've exchanged love for respect. He said, here's how I want you to start to practice living in the love of God. I want you to, on a daily basis, wake up and read the prayer of Paul in Ephesians 3, 4, except exchange your name whenever it feels appropriate. And so on a daily basis, I've been waking up and reading, for this reason I bow my knees. This is 314 of Ephesians there on uh, 977. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant Kent to be strengthened with power through his spirit in Kent's inner being, so that Christ may dwell in Kent's heart through faith that Kent, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that Kent may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he said, I want you to get up and I want you to read with your name in there every day and then I want you just to take some time and try to sit in that reality. And so that's what I've been doing on a daily basis. I've been waking up and then just taking time to just think on these things and trying to root in the fact that I am loved, sealed as an adopted child of the king of this world and universe and all that we see and letting that reality be the deepest thing in me so that when I engage my life and all of a sudden anxiousness crops up or anger crops up, or a sense of selfishness, or needing to preserve myself crops up. Deeper than that in me is the fact that I have been loved and am loved by the king of everything, and I am fully sealed in his family. And then we move on, and we pass over a chapter heading, and I will just say the word of God In itself is completely inspired by the Spirit. These little chapter headings are not necessarily inspired by the Spirit. And so sometimes they're helpful and sometimes they're unhelpful. And I would argue that maybe this one is unhelpful because it breaks up Ephesians 2 1 through 10, which is typically where I was told to stop when presenting the gospel. And it breaks it off from 11 through 22, where it says this Therefore, that word therefore is saying, Hey, everything that I just said, Ephesians 1 through 10, The fact that you've been saved by grace, the fact that it's not of your own work, that nobody can do this, that you are fully forever sealed, you're the workmanship of God, that truth that we celebrate week in and week out, think of all of that. Remember at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. And you don't need to parse into the Greek to know that when he's talking about Gentiles, he's talking about a racial term, and when he's talking about in the flesh, he's talking about your race, your ethnicity. The Bible is saying, hey, here's the most beautiful form of the gospel of you learning that you've been saved by faith, by grace through faith, and, and that God's brought you in out of your naughty-by-nature hip-hop hooray, and now you are brought into the family of God. And now let's talk about ways that we have been divided in the flesh, specifically your own flesh. Verse 11, yes, Gentiles in faith in the fle- uh, flesh. Um, ultimately, what Paul is trying to do here is trying to, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, by putting them all in one place, he's trying to form a cross shaped gospel. And what I mean by that is that the gospel has a vertical component to it. In fact, it is that what we just talked about, that we are fully brought into the family of God. We are saved by grace. We are rooted and grounded in love. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is of first importance, the fact that I am forgiven and brought into God's family as a sealed child. But then he goes on to say, hey, therefore, I want you to consider the horizontal nature of the gospel. That there is horizontal implications to how this then has you relate To the adopted brothers and sisters that I have brought you into the family with. That's why there's this regular sense of, in the book of Ephesians, in several other books of the Bible. Hey, this is the love of God for you. This is what God has done for you. Now, therefore, this is how you work this out in relationships. This is how you let the love of God come into you and then explode out of you. It's why God says, in the, or Jesus says, when he's asked, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He says it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, body, and your strength, and your mind. And the second is like it, meaning the second is intrinsically linked to it. As you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, it intrinsically works its way out into loving others as yourself. There's this natural vertical and horizontal movement of the gospel in our lives. It's why 1 John says, to love God and to hate your brother. How can you do that? The word hate in Greek is not necessarily meaning wishing ill will or having ill thoughts towards someone. Rather, it's the idea of separation. That's why when Jesus says, hey, uh, if you can't come to me unless you hate your father, your brother, your mother, your sister, he's not saying, hey, I want you to have ill will or ill feelings towards your father or mother or brother or sister. But if you can't separate from them, if they're holding you back from coming to me, then you can't come to me. And so this idea of hate comes in separation. So in Matthew 18, Jesus says, an unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. How can someone who has experienced the lavish forgiveness of all their sin and the lavishness of of removing all division from you and the God of the universe who is perfect and holy and allowing you to be his child, look at somebody else and hold bitterness and grudges? Or in Matthew 25, he says, hey, there's no such thing as a greedy Christian. That what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. That how can we be somebody who has just had all things given to them by Jesus, that has been sealed and given all the riches of him for eternity, look at other people who don't have the goods of this world and hold them back. And In the Ephesians 2, 14 through 21, he lays out another oxymoron. Let's read it and then I'll point it out. For he himself, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself one new man. Keep Keep that phrase in mind. We'll come back to that in place of the two. So making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off And peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Ultimately, what Ephesians two, just like Matthew says, there's no such thing as an unforgiving Christian or a greedy Christian. Ephesians two says, of course, there's no such thing as a racist or prejudiced Christian, but also a separate church. It's an oxymoron. There's a picture in Revelation five that we talk about here at Psalm all the time. The church talks about all the time. It's this picture that John, when he's seeing the new heavens and the new earth. Envision to him, he sees God's throne room, and he says he looks around and he sees around a great multitude of every tongue and every tribe and every nation, all worshiping God together. And the word of that collected group, uh, the Greek word is aborizo, and it's a word that means supermarket. It's this concept that God comes into the supermarket of humanity and takes from himself someone of every tongue and every tribe and every nation and creates a great mixed multitude of people all coming together in one unifying, worshiping body. Ephesians 2 says that all of us in this mixed family are built together into a temple. That's meant to be extreme unity. I mean I don't know if you know about how buildings work. All of the bricks are put together in total unity. If there's any separation, the structure will fall. But what's interesting about when you see things that are like structures of bricks, typically all the bricks have to be the same shape to kind of fit together perfectly in order to be totally unified. But the beauty and the majesty of God is that He takes bricks that are different and holds them together in increasing unity so that they grow though different into a deepening unity that shows, as Paul's going to say, the mystery of God, the power of God. That people would look at this unity in diversity and say, this is something unthinkable before God's power entered into the system. Because God himself, in his very nature, is unity in diversity. He's three but one. The trinity is the most confusing concept. And he's meaning to say, hey, I am three and I'm one. I am unity in my diversity. And so he makes man and woman. And he says, hey, you are going to be two separate things. You're going to be very different, but yet you are going to be unified in one flesh because you're going to in picture to the whole world What unity looks like in diversity, or diversity looks like in unity. That's why when Paul walks into a city in the book of Acts, in Acts 17, he starts asking, hey, where's the synagogue? Acts 17, he's in Athens, and he goes to the synagogue, and he preaches to the Jews, and he says, hey, that savior that you've been looking for is actually here, and his name is Jesus, and some Jews are saved. In Acts 19, he goes to Ephesus. And he goes to the synagogue, and he preaches that, hey, these Jews, this is Jesus, your Savior. He has now come to come bring the new heavens and the new earth. He's come to bring and save you from all of your sin and your death and your oppression, not just from the Romans, but from the sin and the death that is inside us. And then he goes and he continues, because his, he was formed by what he said, Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so he says, hey, where are the people of other ethnicities? Where are the, where are the non-Jews? At Athens, it was Mars Hill. So he went and he reasoned with them at Mars Hill. And at Ephesus, it was the Hall of Tyrannus. And so he went and reasoned with them in the Hall of Tyrannus. And then some Gentiles, some non-Jews, began to follow after Jesus. And now you've got a problem. It's because you've got Jews and Gentiles that have responded to the fact that they are brought into the family of God as adopted children. And if Paul was practicing what we most commonly do in our time and place, he probably would have started two separate churches where both cultures and both places could have lived and grown up in faith in a way that did not continue to have the struggle and the messiness and the pain of being one temple, being one dwelling place for God famously said of the American church, and it's very, very true, that the hour that we are in right now is one of the most segregated hours of the entire American week. And it's just something that Paul looks at that and says, no, I'm making one church. I'm making one church for the Jew and for the Gentile, and the theater in which you will work out your progressive sanctification as you come together as people that are different and continually making yourself more and more one is the church. There is one church. I want you to work out becoming one in that that venue. So that you see in the first century, multi-ethnic is pretty much just the norm. It's why in the Bible there's so much talk about food. Have you ever wondered that? like, Why does the Bible give so much air time to talking about food? It's because there's a multi-ethnic church. And in a multi-ethnic church with different cultures and different expressions and different backgrounds and different things about thinking about what food is or what that food is, what food's good, what food's bad, you have to deal with food in the church. Because if it's just everyone in different churches, then you can have your kosher dogs in one place and you can have your meat not sacrificed to pagan idols in the other and everybody's fine but if you're all in one church, you've got to work out, okay, how do we love each other and how do we come together and how do we eat, uh, eat together in a way that is respective of our differences and our backgrounds? It's why we need to be increasingly aware of our personal preferences and our church preferences. There's a, a famous blog, uh, What White People Like, I read it this week. Here's just a selection that I was like, "Mm mm-hmm. Number one was coffee. Number three was film festivals. Number 10, Wes Anderson movies. Absolutely. 23, microbreweries. 27, marathons, half marathons, and 5Ks. 28, not having a TV. Or in my case, appearing to not have a TV. It's in a cupboard, no one knows. We open it up. 42 sushi, May 45 degrees, and their half price Sunday night sushi live forever. 61 bicycles, 67 standing still at concerts, in my case, patting my chest. Um, 72 studying abroad, 102 children's games as adults, such as Dodgeball Leagues. 110 frisbee sports, 112 hummus, absolutely, we are a multi generation family of hummus eaters in my house. Uh, 118, ugly sweater parties, 122, moleskin notebooks, absolutely, have you ever taken a note about Jesus that has not been a moleskin notebook? Probably not. Uh, 128, camping, 131, Conan O'Brien, 132, picking their own fruit, uh, 140 something, or no, it was 131, TED Talks. I get that that's all painting with a very broad brush, and there's many people who are of a white ethnicity or a background in a different economic class. Are just like I ain't in that list. Is not my list. That is totally my list. (laughs) There's a way in which I need to be aware of my preferences and a way of just my cultural background, so I can say I'm white. I love these things. And God made me fearfully and wonderfully. He made me white. And he made me with my culture. He made me with my preferences. He made so that you put me down in an ugly sweater party, eating hummus, playing a frisbee sport or an adult dodgeball league that I will say yes and amen. God is good and I will worship his name. And I want to be aware of my preferences so I can celebrate God's goodness and how he's designed me and what I bring in my Diversity, but then also so that I at times can lay down my preferences in order that I may hold together in arms with brothers and sisters in unity. Because ultimately, I want to be a part of building one new man. That's that phrase I said to hold on to, or it says, what was it verse 15? We'll start in 14, for he himself is our peace. Who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. That one new man, that word new, is the Greek word kinos. Greek is a very nuanced language, and so it has multiple words for what we just sometimes have one word for. And so they have the word uh, neos, which means like the latest. And so, like the latest MacBook or the latest yeah, uh, smartphone, the latest Boeing jet. Or whatever. There's the latest, but kainos means of a new kind. And so, if neos is the latest iPhone, then kainos is the first computer. If neos is the first Boeing jet, then kainos is standing at Kitty Hawk and watching for the very first time humans in a contraption take flight it has no category in our mind before it happens. It blows our minds. And he says that the one thing that God is going to make between the Jews and the Gentiles is I'm going to create a people that are so unified in their diversity that when people look at them, they're going to have their minds blown and be like, well, there's, there's no other place in all of humanity where that works out. Everywhere else you put people with different backgrounds and they all eventually unravels. But there's a place where there becomes one new humanity. And my fear is is that there's people that are walking into churches every single day and not having their minds blown because they look around and be like, well, this kind of seems like where everybody would be if there was no Jesus. There's no cross holding this all together. There's no breaking down of the wall of hostility. Like This just is the group of people that I would normally find myself hanging out with. This is the group of people that I would normally find myself going to games with, or, or going to adult dodgeball leagues with, or doing whatever I would do with. And so one thing that I want to just talk about in the series, and I want us to think about in the series, is thinking about our churches individually and as a church, so we can regularly talk about how do we celebrate the beauty of diversity that we bring, And then how do we lay down preferences so that we might seek unity with diverse expressions of the image of God in ways that don't look like or don't feel like or don't talk like the way that I do or don't think in the same ways or don't have the same bits of culture. I want to do that as a church, continually thinking like, how do we continually make ourselves in a way that we have our preferences and we're willing to lay them down? And then also as individuals, how do we enter into situations where I have my preferences and then I'm willing to lay them down because sometimes I'm going to need to in order to to hang out with you. I'm going to have to do it on your schedule, on, on your conversation topics, on ways that you engage. And it might be really weird and hard for me, but I just want to do it in a way that it's going to seek unity in diversity. And ultimately, we'd be a church, and I'll end with this concept, we'd be a church that looks a lot like mayonnaise. Mayonnaise is a fascinating food, if you think about it. Because mayonnaise is made up of components that have no business being in community together. Oil and Water. And if you have chemistry at all, you know oil and water don't hang out by nature. But if you have mayonnaise, you have the combination of oil and water, and if you're in chemistry, you know what this is, you have an emulsifier. And in mayonnaise, the emulsifier is egg. That egg takes oil and water, and egg says to water, hey, water, you just come and you commune with me and I will change you and shape you in one that begins to look out and commune with those who you otherwise did not commune with previously. And then uh, Egg looks at oil and says, hey, oil, you come in and commune with me, and you bring all that you bring as oil. But as you changed and shaped by me, I will join you to others that would become a unity and diversity, a diversity and unity. And the cross is the emulsifier that Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. So not that we would be able to see people of different cultures and wave and smile, but so that we would take all that we are and celebrate what we bring to the picture and then lay it down so that we might be built together in a temple that Plays a new humanity that shows the mystery of the power of God that he can emulsify to and make them something new. And so that's what we're getting into this next several weeks. Let's celebrate unity in this moment through the act of communion. That's where we picture the emulsifying act of the cross that the cross has taken away sin and taken away death and taken away division between me and God, and so now we come and we take of a common bread and dip it into a common cup because now he is also, as we press into him, we then are also reconciled to each other, and that is the act of communion. So if you're here and you're a Christian, there'll be stations around the room where you can come, tear the bread, dip it in the cup, and of one loaf and of one cup, recognize that we are of one Savior, access to one God in one family, and we are brought together as diverse people and diverse experiences in unity. And that if that is true of us now, then we want to continually be a people that shows the power of the emulsifier that we have by seeking a deeper diversity and a stronger unity. So, you're a Christian, I invite you to come and take of these things. Let me pray for us now, and we'll partake.